Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. How can U.S. military readiness meet America's present strategic responsibilities at a time of budgetary shrinkage and growing isolationism? And we are joined today by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, retired Admiral James Ellis, former commander of United States Strategic Command, former president and CEO of the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations, and Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Admiral, thanks for joining us. Oh, delighted to be here, sir. Thank you. All right. So let's start with this broad question of military readiness at the conceptual level. The concept is not as easy to get your head around as that simple phrase would suggest because, of course, you never know precisely what it is that you have to be ready for. Um, given all of your years of experience in uniform, you're very well positioned to tell this audience, how does the senior military – try to think through that element, those issues of uncertainty when they never know precisely what they're going to be up against? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it's the it's the classic trade that I suspect uh, not just every military commander, but everyone who's been involved in national security has wrestled with for, uh, for as long as we've existed as a nation. Uh, it's in some sense the guns versus butter discussion, but in, in other sense, even when you do get the, the money uh, for national security, which as many note is the, uh, is the first role of government, uh, uh, the question is what do you buy and, uh, and how do you apportion and prioritize that and against what threat do you, uh, uh, do you prepare? How do you understand the realities that sometimes the, uh, the probabilities of of an outcome are not the same as the consequences of an outcome, and and so that's where the uh, the challenge comes in. My South Carolina grandfather used to say, "It's easy to be a clown if you don't have to run the circus." Well, the folks that are in there trying to make budget allocations are, are trying to run the circus, and it's the expectation, and I think properly so, that our national security uh, architecture, uh, not just the military services, but the civilian components, the logistics, and and hopefully the policy piece as well. All has to uh, uh, to be ready to respond to uh, uh, to whatever realities come your way, and it's a it's a tough tough challenge. And you know you're accused of fighting the last war if you uh, if you remember it and uh, and make sure that you're going to be better prepared the next time. Uh, if you uh, if you try and be a futurist and think about uh, what might confront the nation next, uh, uh, you can be accused of having your head in the clouds and not uh, uh, focusing on the day to day realities. Uh, as I said at the end of the Cold War, you know, a single dragon's been replaced by a thousand snakes, and you've got to deal with that as well. So it's a, it's a tough challenge, and uh, and it's one that uh, uh, far better people than I have wrestled with for uh, for decades, and I suspect it'll continue to challenge us going forward. How have the dynamics of that process changed over the last few decades? Are there major trends that you'd point to that are maybe different even from when you were in uniform? Well, I think so. I mean, we uh, we tend to talk in domains, and some people don't like uh, multi-domains. They like cross-domain conversations, and you know, it's a it's a it's a broader application of the uh, the joint approach that uh, that we began decades ago, uh, fostered by Goldwater Nichols or supported by Goldwater Nichols. But but it, I think we do it much better. Uh, the challenge we face is we want perfection. We want it to be exactly right. And as I mentioned in the in the first paragraph of my piece, I well remember in the 
uh, in the late 90s when we were kind of wrestling with uh, uh, what we thought was the upcoming peace dividend and trying to figure out what to take away, not to add to uh, to readiness and still maximize it. We were, we were looking at very detailed metrics. We were putting together war rooms and spreadsheets, and then that became automated, trying to figure out if uh, you know where do you where do you put that one more dollar if you have it uh, in order to best enhance uh, you know national security and, and and military readiness and the reality is of course that's just kind of not the way the world works uh, as I used to say when I spoke in some of the the war college venues uh, you know you'll plan for a hundred contingencies and fate will inevitably deal you the one hundred and first and so uh, it's how you reassemble all that one hundred sets of plans into now something that uh, uh, that at least uh, satisfactorily meets the 101st. That's a, that's a measure of readiness as well. So it's not just things. It's not just stuff. It's not just systems. It's leadership. It's a mindset. It's uh, it's the courage to occasionally sit down and think about the unthinkable and, and realize that uh, in uh, one way or another, you need to be able to not necessarily deal with that because some of it's deterrence. Uh, a lot of it should be. Uh, how do you prevent that from uh, being something that confronts the nation uh, uh, a year or a decade? hands. You said it's not just stuff. I'm going to ask you one more question actually just about stuff. You can't read any tech publication for too long these days without finding some sort of rhapsodic discussion about the use of technology in warfare. And we've done entire issues of Strategica about drones and and high-tech combat. In calibrating our forces for the 21st century, any worry that maybe we've gone too far on that front, that perhaps we've fetishized the advances in technology too much relative to more conventional weapons? Well, I, I, it's hard to say. And again, I go back to my clown and circus analogy. I've been out of, you know, out of uniform now for over a decade. And uh, even though I, I still stay plugged in and, and I'm privileged to do some work here at Hoover in the, in the national security arena, uh, it is true that uh, there are new domains. I mean, we talk often and a lot about cyber. And I've been quoted in a recent book uh, called Dark Territory about cyber warfare, about some of the, the nascent activities that uh, that we pursued again in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And clearly, things have gone well beyond that. Uh, I've just completed a, a classified study on uh, national security space for the National Academy of Engineering, where you kind of look at our reliance on space systems, and and uh, many argue that those are increasingly vulnerable to uh, uh, both kinetic and non-kinetic. Uh, interruptions, if you will, uh, on the part of those that wish us ill. Uh, but I, but I, I think I'd like to resist an either-or kind of analogy. We've uh, right. the pie has gotten bigger. In other words, we've now got, uh, in that case, two more domains in addition to the maritime, air, and uh, and land. And and so, as a as a nation, we're going to have to accept that reality and deal with it uh, appropriately. And uh, and as uh, as many have pointed out recently, uh, those are no longer stovepipe. Or insular domains, they uh, they touch on each other, and uh, a challenge that arises in uh, you know to our space assets, for example, need not have a response in space. It could have a terrestrial uh, uh, response, uh, potentially kinetic as well. And so, you know, there's that relationship that I think we just need to be mindful of. And but it does make because it adds just two more dimensions to this uh, the problem uh, or the challenge much more complex. In thinking through how we plan for contingencies, you mentioned in your piece at Strategica, there's a real potential problem with falling into something that's called mirror imaging. Explain that concept for our audience because it may be a little jargony for a general listener, but it strikes me as a deeply important insight. 
Well, you know, mirror imaging uh, is something that uh, that all armed forces can uh, and national security entities, for that matter, can fall prey to. And that's where you uh, you think about uh, uh, your adversary's potential responses uh, in in your own frame of reference. In other words, you don't anticipate the unusual, the uh, uh, the out of the box, the uh, I guess what they called in the hunt for Red October, the crazy Ivan, where you do something that's uh, uh, that's completely illogical, and we, and we we say, well, he wouldn't do that because it isn't logical. Would it? It may be entirely logical. But not in the same frame of reference that we do, and that could be a cultural frame of reference. It can be a, a military frame of reference. It could be willingness to to accept things that we would never accept, civilian casualties and the like, and and the like. And so we say, well, they wouldn't do that. Well, and quite frankly, they they would. And so sometimes you need to think. One needs to think more broadly, and and not uh, think that you have perfect knowledge of both the motivation and the thought process that a potential adversary might be uh, might be going through. And when you when you think of them just as you would think of him or her, then you're guilty of mirror imaging. And that's something to be avoided, as we can see here in the, in the conflicts with which we are in which we are now engaged. There's another really interesting observation in your piece. I'm going to present it here without context, A, because the formulation is so arresting, but B, because I want you to have the opportunity to present the broader idea here. You say at one point in your piece at Strategica, you can't surge trust. Explain what you mean by that. Well, uh, you know, it 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 really is important, I think, in uh, in the global character of of our national security challenges today, to understand the value that uh, we have to place on uh, on relationships uh, internationally, partnerships and the like. And and we tend to use terms like coalition or alliance. And as I say in that piece, an alliance and a coalition are not at all the same thing. An alliance is a group of folks who are united by uh, common objectives and common standards uh, flock to the standard planted in the sand, sometimes literally in, in our recent experience. And, and, a, and that's a coalition, uh, kind of a, a collection of the willing, if you will. In fact, we often use the term a coalition of the willing. An alliance is uh, is something entirely different. That's where it predates the uh, that the, the, the partners are there, the members are there. NATO is a, is a good example, uh, and, there, and there are a couple of others, not nearly as many as there once used to be. And the difference there is in an, if you decide you want to act as an alliance, you have to work the rough edges uh, off of uh, everybody's position. But you get the huge advantage and the huge power of bringing everyone along in this effort, not just those that, that want to do, want to be a part of it, but but everyone. And uh, and as a result, your your thought process is refined. You deal with the, the tough issues up front and, uh, and you get people, all the members of an alliance, if, to the point if they can't say yes, at least you get them to the point where they don't say no. And then you act collectively with great advantage. So uh, the corollary to that is uh, in order to build relationships, whether they're coalition or alliances, you've got to uh, to exercise. You've got to have interaction. You've got to know people on a personal basis. You've got to have been to the war college with them a decade ago when they were their national uh, 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 participant at the Navy War College at Newport or wherever you happen to go, and you kind of grew up together or you established relationships within the context of an alliance where you, you knew each other well before the crisis, and therefore when the crisis comes, they trust you. And so that's not something where you can sit back behind a, an imaginary moat or a, or, a, or a high wall and say, well, I'll only go forward when it serves the national interest, and then I'll build those relationships. My point is, hey, 
we're all human beings and those relationships take time and the best of them can take a career in order to grow and and deepen and enrich and i think the nation is and the world is better served when those relationships are sustained and george schultz's words around here he he uses the same term and and when speaking of diplomacy he says you know you've got to tend to the gardens of diplomacy uh, on a continuing basis so that when it comes time to harvest you've uh, you've you've enriched it and it's there when you need it the same thing is true of uh, of the trust between national security elements uh, around the globe so uh, a long answer to uh, to a short question but i hope it it clarifies what i meant by that it certainly does you know an, an outsider could probably be forgiven for thinking that one of the most essential aspects when you're thinking about military readiness is speed. I mean it's one of the defining features I think we see everywhere in the 21st century, whether it's transportation or communication. And and especially we live in a social media era. It sometimes sort of feels like societies make up their mind on whatever the controversy of the day is in about 20 minutes. But you actually argue in this piece at Strategica though that there are a lot of cases in which for the sake of national security – you sometimes want to slow down response times, be a little bit more deliberative. Explain what you mean by that. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And you know, as a as an old engineer, I think about it in terms of uh, of dynamic systems. You know, lightly damp systems that oscillate and the like. And uh, if you enter that system at the wrong time, you can actually drive systems divergent. In other words, you can overdrive a concept. And uh, uh, and so getting there quickly, in some ways, can be hugely important. If if lives are at risk, or or something needs to be uh, to be solved or settled, or fires extinguished, literally or figuratively, uh, there there can be a need for speed. But just because the, the communication, uh, social media or others that travels at the speed of light doesn't mean that the organization or the leadership of, uh, of a potential adversary can assimilate, can discuss, can realize the seriousness of the situation at the same speed. And so the example I often use is the Taiwan Straits crisis in 1996 when Bill Perry was Secretary of Defense and I happened to be a young one-star battle group commander uh, uh, off the uh, off the coast of the Philippines when uh the Chinese started firing ballistic missiles north and south of Taiwan uh, because they were unhappy with the uh, the tone of the upcoming uh, elections on the island uh, the uh, the secretary asked me to go uh, directed me to go to the area and I did I was very nearby but he also uh, directed another carrier battle group commanded by a good friend of mine named uh, Lyle Bien uh, to come out of the uh, out of the Persian Gulf the Arabian Gulf and come all the way to off Taiwan and so Every day, the media would have this was his was the Nimitz battle group. Mine was Independence. To this day, interestingly enough, the Chinese think we picked the name of my battle group or my battle group to be there because of its name, hmm. the Independence Battle Group. But uh, we weren't that clever, actually. But anyway, <laughs> uh, um, Lyle is bringing his, and uh, the headline reads: uh, Nimitz Battle Group transiting the Strait of Hormuz. Nimitz the next day. Nimitz Battle Group transiting across the Indian Ocean. Nimitz Battle Group coming around the uh, the Horn of uh, of India and the like. And so the Chinese, in my uh, opinion, realized, you know, over several days that they had underestimated uh, the level of uh, of response and, and therefore concern on the part of uh, the United States with regard to their actions. And uh, and ultimately, it, it did uh, uh, kind of dawn on them and sink in. And uh, the markets re- rejoined. In fact, the Chinese stopped their missile firings in advance of the uh, the time they had said they intended to 
do so. And, and so it's an example of rather than being able to, to move at light speed and potentially drive a, a tense situation divergent, this gave them time to appreciate and to understand the, uh, uh, the, the seriousness, to debate it, I suspect, internally and to realize that uh, they needed to find a way to get out of this without a loss of face. And, uh, and so I use that as an example. I'm not saying that uh, it's always the right answer to go slow, but you always need to think about uh, 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 just because you send a message doesn't mean someone has received and understood it. And so you need to allow enough time for that to take place, too, if you're going to exercise diplomacy and, uh, and deterrence in an appropriate way. All right. Our guest today has been Admiral James Ellis. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Admiral, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 